Welcome to Third Fridays, the monthly legal talk show from Lois LLC featuring attorney Christian Cisan. This is the original forum in which real attorneys discuss workers' compensation issues, share their opinions, and engage in colorful conversations. This show showcases diverse perspectives of attorneys handling workers' comp cases, including case law trends, practical litigation strategies, and hot topics. Here's your host, Christian Cisan. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the July 2023 edition of the Third Fridays podcast. It's actually episode number 70, uh, and we've got a jam-packed show with three guests. Uh, so that's great for our listeners because it's less talking from me. Uh, but to recap, uh, last month's episode, we talked about a great fraud win uh, from one of our uh, co-workers, Anthony Eiler, and his paralegal, Steve Obubolo, uh, the dog show breeding case. Uh, You guys might know a little bit about it, uh, but essentially for our listeners, if you haven't listened to it yet, uh, it's one of the best fact patterns uh, that I've ever had to come across uh, talking about income from a source that we don't typically see. You know, we see work activity, maybe uh, off the books work, but breeding a show dog uh, as uh, part of a fraud claim was... uh, Nothing short of stupendous uh, puts a smile to my face every day. So go ahead and check that out. Uh, Today, we've got an interesting show for you guys because it has to do with uh, Section 29, Subsection 5. And yeah, you may not know exactly what that is, but that's why I have three guests. So uh, I'd first like to welcome to the show uh, his maiden voyage onto the podcast, Dan Gillis. Welcome to the show, bud. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me, Christian. And uh, I'd also like to welcome back to the show, Vandana Saunders. You've been on a couple times. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, of course. Excited to be here. And uh, the man who has been on the show 12 times previously, the ham to my cheese, uh, Mr. Christopher Major. Welcome back. Emphasis on ham. I was wondering if we were counting them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. There's, there's definitely, there's definitely a count. There's definitely a count, and you're definitely winning. Uh, so it's, it's, it's good to, uh, you know, keep it going with you. Of course, uh, you're a very frequent guest and a very well liked guest. Uh, based on all the emails I get about you. So what else is new? Um, Lovely. Section 29.5, right? Uh, only the most nuanced practitioners of our industry know exactly what that is just by uttering the name. So for our beginners or even our intermediate listeners, what is that? All right. Well, let me start with the punchline so that we, we rope everybody in here with, with just how great this can actually be. So what is what does a 29.5 violation get you? This is we're skipping to the end here. Uh, basically a free full and final section 32. So hopefully you, um, you claims professionals out there in New York, that has piqued your interest. Now, what exactly is it? Um, well, section 29.5 requires either the carrier's written consent to settle the claimant's third party action or, and it's at the claimant's choice. There's no requirement to ask for a consent first, a compromise order from the court in which the third party action is pending approving the settlement, which is referred to as a 29-5 compromise order. If it's done late, you might have heard it referred to as an NPT motion, nunc pro tunc. Um, You know, that's if it happens more than 90 days after the third-party settlement. There's some additional proofs the claimant needs to show. But 29-5 has a very specific list of requirements uh, for a compromise order. 
and no attorney who gets to the finish line of their third-party action uh, is going to want to spend the additional money litigating a 29-5 compromise order. So the spoiler here is that 99% um, of these cases are going to start with the claimant asking for our consent first. Now, the penalty for failure to do that, either get our consent or an NPT order approving the settlement retroactively or a contemporaneous uh, compromise order, the penalty for the claimant failing to get one of those three things for settling their third party action is a waiver of all future indemnity and medical benefits. And what's great about this is, you know, fraud is, you know, 114A is objectively more difficult to prove and doesn't even get you the medical waiver. So I, I love this as a tactic. Um, and I do think it's quite underutilized. And one of the things I hope we'll go into today is about how you can get creative with these 29.5 violation arguments, because it's not just settlement that requires your consent. And we'll we'll talk about that in a moment. So it's always that's the nutshell version. Always interesting when you know someone like you comes on the show and says, I hope we're going to talk about it. And then what am I going to do? Not talk about it? Of course, we're going to talk <laughs> about it. Maybe we'll start there. Uh, you know, what what is a consent agreement? What what does that entail? What does it consist of? Uh, you know, is it just simply saying, "Hey, yeah, you can you can settle your third party case that arises out of my work accident"? What what is a consent agreement? So. It's it's a little unhelpful um, what the law has carved out over time, because if you do some digging into it, you're going to find only one thing that everyone unanimously agrees needs to be in there no matter what. A reservation of future uh, credit and offset rights that comes from Brisson versus County of Onondaga and a number of cases that came before it. Um, but that's the big one everyone cites to. And if you don't expressly reserve your future credit and offset rights, you may hear them referred to as Burns rights in New York, um, they're waived. So that's the one thing we know, you know, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that needs to be in there. Now, what does a good consent agreement contain? Well, um, I actually just did a, uh, a webinar on that um, this week uh, or last week, whenever the second Monday was in July. So um, if you want to check that out, I've laid it all out. But the long story short is the bullet points. What is the lien? Uh, what is the third-party settlement breakdown? Because we need to calculate the cost of litigation per Kelly versus state insurance fund. So we asked for a proposed closing statement, gross settlement, attorney's fee, itemized costs and disbursements, net to claimant. We figure out our contribution to litigation costs. So then you put in what the reimbursement amount is, you know, uh, total lien minus somewhere between 33 and 36 percent, depending on the third party litigation costs. Then we expressly reserve future offset rights and specify exactly when they begin and how they apply. And I strongly recommend doing that other than just saying parties reserve rights per burns uh, because you're cruising for a bruising and leaving it up to the law judge if it's ever litigated, you know, how medical is to be paid once you assert an offset. So uh, now's the time to get it all out there. Um, and after the express reservation of future credit and offset rights, uh, instructions for payment of the lien reimbursement, or if it's a global, you know, when the 32 uh, is approved, the reimbursement becomes payable to the claimant, followed by a bunch of provisions about contingent revocation if the terms and condi conditions are not complied with. So the long story short is a consent agreement is literally nothing more than a settlement contract. That's all it is. And for that exact reason, 
the board's jurisdiction is limited to interpreting the terms of it. They can't change it. They can't alter it. All they can do is look at it and try and make sense of it. Um, so get it right on the first go and you're in the driver's seat the whole time. But that's what a consent letter is. In short, don't just say you consent to the agreement, right? Uh, just, you know, you, you need a lot more stuff. You, you just rattled off a bunch of things that uh, many of us now don't remember, uh, but it's okay. You know, that's that's what uh, we're here to do, right? We can help uh, employers and carriers, third-party ministers through that process. And we do love those subrogation departments, but it will look more clean if Chris Major's uh, signature is underneath that uh, letterhead. So um, we have a consent agreement. You also mentioned something in Latin, right? Nunc pro tunc, right? What's, what's that? So all that is, it, the literal translation is now for then. And essentially, uh, they're required to get our consent to settle within 90 days. If they don't do that within 90 days of the settlement, uh, if they don't do that, then the consent is, or the compromise order is considered late, if you want to call it that. And that's what a non-pro-tunk motion is. And then there's additional showings on top of all the itemized stuff in 29.5 that the claimant has to show in order to get an approved non-pro-tunk. You know, no prejudice to the carrier, a reasonable excuse for the delay, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So all an NPT motion is, is uh, a compromise order that happens late with additional requirements. Um, One of the things I did want to mention, though, that I think is, is quite uh, salient to the points we we're discussing. Uh, I keep saying settlement, you know, settlement, you need a compromise order uh, or a consent to settlement. Um, so that's actually not what 29.5 says. So 29 compromise of the third party action. Uh, and I'm literally reading basically verbatim out of the risk transfer handbook um, from 2022. Who wrote that but, risk transfer handbook? Oh, uh, speaking personally. Oh, okay. All right. Just, truly. Just, just making sure. So, um, a discontinuance of the action is a compromise that requires the carrier's consent. Abandonment and dismissal is also a compromise that requires the carrier's consent. This is true regardless of whether prejudice results to the carrier by the compromise. Uh, only if the dismissal was involuntary is consent not required. And as I think um, Dan and Van have seen in their cases, um, the burden is on the claimant in the first instance to number one, prove that they obtained consent, and number two, that they complied with the terms of a consent agreement. And that's why the very last bullet point in a good consent letter that I mentioned was contingent revocation, which is, you know, you have to send us an itemized closing or a final closing statement filed with the Office of Court Administration within 90 days of your receipt of the settlement funds. Failure to do so shall constitute a 29-5 violation. Or uh, this consent to settlement is expressly contingent upon approval of the Section 32 contemplated by this global settlement agreement. If the 32 is not approved, the carrier's consent is no longer valid. So we basically kind of, you know, bind the claimant's wrists and drag them through a 32 approval here. Oh, wow. Otherwise, we get a free 32 out of it. So <laughs> Very striking visual. Very striking visual. Yeah, the violation can come from a failure to comply with the terms of a consent 
Or um, there can be a violation if you go into a third-party action and you see, if you go into the online docket and you see stipulation of discontinuance, and even if there was no settlement paid, even if uh, you know a third-party attorney just filed it, you know, to beat the statute of limitations and avoid malpractice, and then he realized the claimant is, you know, going to be the least credible witness on God's green earth, and there's just not enough exposure in the case to justify going after attorney's fee. So they agree to discontinue the third-party action with prejudice because it's going nowhere, right? There's no settlement. How is the carrier prejudiced by this? There's no cause of action. Doesn't matter. Uh, at that point, if they did not ask for our consent before doing that stip of discontinuance, that's a 29.5 violation because, if you're interested in the policy rationale, theoretically, we would have been able to prosecute that case under 29.2. And he has now just compromised our ability to do that with the stipulation of discontinuance. You know, maybe we don't agree that the claimant's a bad witness. We have the right to subrogate. And you've now kicked away that right and didn't ask us first. So I encourage you to look for compliance with terms of consent as a potential violation or failure to get consent before an action is compromised, not necessarily settled. So that compromise word is kind of important. So that's an interesting thing you bring up. Uh, you know, 29.2, uh, before we introduce, you know, a, new, a different subsection of that statute, uh, let, you know, let's let's circle back to that because 29.2 actually might have some implication for one of the cases here, um, at least uh, for my reading. But I could be wrong. Let's go to the experts. Uh, I'll start with you, Vandana. Your case uh, had, uh, a, you know, a, a long history of litigation of other issues. We had, yeah. you know, your regular garden variety workers' compensation litigation issues, and then something else happens. Can you give us a little bit of a backdrop as to what you were doing and, and then maybe what happened as, uh, you know, the Section 29.5 issue came about? Yeah, sure. So um, general background on the claim, uh, May 2021 accident, it's a motor vehicle accident, ANCR is neck, back, bilateral ankles. And at the time, or just prior to us addressing the issue of a Section 29 violation, we were litigating multiple issues, including degree of disability, whether the claimant had reached MMI. And we also had some pretty juicy surveillance. We were planning on raising fraud. So while we're in the midst of litigating that, on January 27th, 2022, my paralegal pre actually got an email from our adjuster with a letter from the third-party attorney asking what this means and how this implicates workers' compensation. And, you know, hats off to Pre for being able to read the letter, seeing that the claimant settled his third-party action and not quite understanding why they were asking for consent at this point if they're already telling us that they settled the claim. So she, you know, alerted me to that. And uh, I had a lovely conversation with the Chris Major about <laughs> what really this letter means. And the letter was very simple, actually. It just stated that the claimant had settled his third-party claim for $45,000. And since it's a motor vehicle accident and the workers' compensation benefits did not yet exceed $50,000, we should be waiving our lien. That's incorrect. Basically, uh, <laughs> so, thank you, thank so, you for saying that because this is a hot button topic with me. Well, Sorry, right, go ahead. Well, you were saying essentially that to, to I guess, to give a little bit more um, information there, it's they, they were taking the presumption that because we were not going to be reimbursed 
from the third party claim that they that they didn't need our consent. Is that what you're saying? I think they were under the assumption that because we might not be able to recover the lien, we would have no issues in waiving our lien. Right. And so they went ahead without us and settled the claim thinking that, oh, it's going to be a quick email. They're just going to agree that they haven't spent the 50000 They're going to waive their lien and we can move on. But that's not really how the law works. So for motor vehicle accidents, we don't have to pay $50,000 because even if we litigated this claim to the very end and the claimant got a minimum Elwick, that indemnity exposure from the Elwick alone would bring us over that $50,000 mark. So it's not at the point of when the third party is settled. It is when the workers' compensation claim ends. And so I think that's where he had uh, the incorrect assumption that we would just be waiving that lien. And for that reason, we uh, you know, brought in Chris Major and we had a lovely discussion with the adjuster to outline all the things that he's already told us about. The NPT motion, um, how we can proceed to, uh, to see if they uh, what the closing statement says, if they have any other um, consents, affirmations, and if not, then they have to go through the motions of filing that motion. And it is so many intricate and detailed steps to get that motion right. And our understanding was that they're likely not going to do it. So our best shot is to pursue a 29-5 violation, which is what we did. And so... Yeah, yeah I, think, I, I think I think what you're saying, too, is maybe they, they thought it was only like one half of the statute, right? The, the, the half that we wouldn't get uh, a reimbursement on what we've already paid, but they didn't realize that the other half is how we deal with future exposure on the workers' compensation claim and how the third-party uh, recovery, the net money received by the claimant, affects his or her ability to obtain indemnity and medical benefits and it's a very, very black and white punishment for the claimant here. No consent means no benefits. And I think that's, Chris, what you were talking about, this this free, full and final Section 32 settlement. You know, you, that's such a, a very interesting term because no settlement is free, right? Even on the cases we win, disallow, you know, uh, Dan and Vanna, you guys have had so many claims that you've disallowed or won on fraud that sometimes we settle uh, for actual money after we win. And here you have this free full and final section 32 that, that you're terming it, where the idea of the claimant's uh, third party attorney really hurt his position in the workers' compensation arena. It almost tells me, you know, to have, uh, you know, a defense firm like us where we're knowing exactly what's going on in both arenas really facilitates a good defense even in just one of them. And to put a to put a finer point on it, Christian, uh, and I did go into this in the in the webinar briefly, the one from July, but um, we haven't paid over 50k yet in an MVA case. Consent required? You betcha. Uh, we haven't paid any benefits at all because the claim is denied. Consent required? You betcha. <laughs> if you look, the, there's actually a case that says uh, any settlement. 
any third party compromise at all is potentially less than the benefits provided for by the workers' comp law, because in New York, workers' comp is theoretically unlimited. Yeah, we can litigate whether medical treatment is compensable, but it's not like there's a statute that says once you reach 500K in medical, you don't have to pay medical anymore. Both medical and indemnity subject to litigation are theoretically unlimited. So the courts have taken the position that uh, our consent is required even if it just looks like this, you know, this workers' comp claim is going to resolve for peanuts. And what's kind of uh, what's kind of great about it is, um, you know, we're we're licking our chops over here. We have, we have two uh, 29.5 violations pending, where um, the claimant filed a pro se uh, complaint just days before the statute of limitations, got bullied by the adverse carrier's attorney who, you know, said, I'm going to serve you with all this stuff. And she chickened out and, and voluntarily discontinued it. And we found out about it after the fact. And, you know, this this claimant is she's a high wage earner and she has income from multiple sources. And the case is all over the place in terms of litigation. And the issues just got narrowed to one thing, because if she violated 29.5, it's over. We don't need to worry about, you know, unrelated wage loss or uh, reduced earnings or anything or fraud for not reporting what she's making. It's all over. And in another one, we have a case where there's almost $500,000 in potential potential LWEC and medical exposure. We're litigating 29.5 over a failure to reimburse $16,000. 16000 versus 500K. And it's like you said, Christian, it's just that black and white. And that's why I love this. It's so powerful. But I'll stop rambling. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, Van and I think one um, thing I was reading too, as I was going through the notes and the decisions, you know, you, you have the, the hearing where the judge makes the decision that, that section 29.5 applies. And I'm not going to call out our workers' compensation adversary, not going to name this person. But, uh, you know, according to what I saw, it, it looks like they kind of just like you know, put their hands over their eyes and ears and, and said, I, I, I didn't get anything from the claimant's third party attorney. I tried. And I don't know. I like, it just seemed like there was actually two entities supposedly well-versed in the law that kind of screwed the pooch for this. It's, it's a little bit different than Dan's case, which we'll get to, but what was your like feeling or what did you think when that claimant's attorney says those words on the record, uh, that's got to yeah. be so jarring. Yeah, it, you know, it, it added to the argument, right? At, at that point, they had only submitted a retainer affirmation and a closing statement. And on one of them, they wrote handwritten NPT motion at the top of it. And so that was, <laughs> that was one of our biggest arguments. Love like, Judge, you know what's required here. You know what an NPT motion looks like. And this affirmation that just has a handwritten NPT motion at the top really isn't it. This is not enough. And then on top of that, for claimants counsel to say, well, we've been trying to get in touch with the third party attorney, but you know, we're not really getting anything from them. Sorry to say it, but that's not our problem. That is, this is your client. And if your client has another attorney, it is your obligation to be working closely with them to protect your client's interests. And at that point, they just hadn't done it anymore. The judge had given them two chances to submit whatever they needed to submit. And we were sitting very comfortably knowing that, 
You can give them five opportunities. You can give them 10 years to produce whatever it is that you're asking for. They don't have it. And so we were just ultimately waiting for the judge to make the call that we knew was coming. And unfortunately for our adversary, all they could do was say, eh, we tried to give them a couple of calls. We don't have anything to show for it. Yeah. And I, uh, that's such a such a we, just a weird way to phrase it. I, I'd almost be, you know, <laughs> in that position and, and, and might just say outright that they that they didn't get consent, right? If I'm the workers' right. compensation claimant's attorney, uh, why am I going to put my fingerprints on this as something that I could have done to effectuate something for the claimant? I would just actually just toss the ball to the other end of the court and say, uh, yeah, you go try to make this impossible full court shot because uh, I this is not my responsibility to get the workers' compensation carrier's consent. But that was just a, a weird nugget that I saw in the report. Yeah. In any event, great result for our client. Uh, you know, you get that 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 decision, uh, a claim being closed where no money moves to the claimant after the litigation. And uh, that's, you know, that's music to everyone's ears on our side of the yeah. aisle. Uh, so great and, win. Uh, Congratulations Christian. to you and Pre. Thank you. Before, before we move on, there were there were two interesting things about what, what Vandana was talking about, which is, number one, you know, we started off with talking about how the burden is on the claimant in the first instance to prove valid consent and compliance with terms of consent. So this, this adversary showing up and throwing his hands in the air going, I can't get in touch with anybody. Well, Vandana's right. That's just not good enough because you have an affirmative burden to prove you got it right, which is why we're in the driver's seat. And the second interesting thing was, you know, just scribbling NPT motion across the top. <laughs> well, number number one, it doesn't have any of the requirements under 29.5 with the, the, list, the laundry list of requirements. Number two, it doesn't make any of the, you know, threshold showings for getting a settlement approved retroactively, aka non-pro-tunk. Number three, it's not even the right form to do it. <laughs> the board, the board does not approve third-party settlements. We talked about that. I, we said that their jurisdiction is limited to interpreting the terms of the consent. So, I mean, this needed to be filed in the in the uh, court where the third-party action was pending. The, the judge literally can't even. The law judge can't even grant the relief that's being sought in that instance. So, this just goes to show you how much misunderstanding there is across our industry on this very discreet but very powerful topic. Well, imagine the, the amount of damage that anyone can do from just writing something on top of a piece of paper and having that be accepted as for what it is. Uh, I, I mean, yeah. I know people look at our industry as, you know, the wild, wild west with the rules of evidence, but I mean, we're still lawyers, for Pete's sake, you know. The only time I've seen that work in law school is a habeas corpus writ from a prisoner on a napkin under under the Constitution. Yeah, and you know what? Otherwise, that I and think that got to do a little better. That prisoner has already been stripped of rights and wasn't represented. So you know, uh, it's like uh, apples and oranges, I guess. But uh, again, great win, Vanina. That that's a, an awesome recitation. I'll I'll throw it over to you now, Dan. Um, you know you. It's your first appearance on this podcast, but one of your cases has already been talked about on the show. Uh, the infamous snake fraud case, yes. the reptile deli, uh, you know, housing 500 snakes, making uh, thousands and thousands of dollars, uh, you know, breed, I guess, like the, you know, the Tiger King of New York workers compensation. Uh, your case was talked about by uh, your paralegal in a previous show. Um, so 
Let's actually talk about your 29.5. Uh, it's a little bit different than Vandana's. Uh, this claimant wasn't represented in our workers' compensation case, right? He was at a, at a certain point for the, I'd say about the most of the litigation, he was represented. Um, starting at the beginning, he was represented by counsel when he filed. Uh, just to set the, the, the baseline here, this is a construction accident in January 2020, multiple injuries. Um, months later, he files a C3 to get the process started and then claims, among other issues, were causal relationship, employer-employee relation. Um, uh, employer-employee relationship and and coverage because there were two carriers on notice uh, for a, a good year and of course he filed a third-party action against the main entity who owned the property where he alleged all these injuries inevitably he uh, his third-party counsel his workers compensation counsel and a former associate of ours uh, worked out a global resolution for a third party in conjunction with our general liability counsel uh, the, the which included a a full denial. Even though there was no lien, it was essentially uh, a lien waiver in exchange for a zero dollar section thirty two agreement to close out our end in exchange for what amounted to be a nominal third party uh, settlement. However, months after back and forth, I go to the section thirty two hearing, and his workers' compensation counsel withdraws on the record. Wow. So kind of leaving us in limbo for months. And the judge, I, you know, I admire his patience because he gave this particular individual months to seek alternative counsel, was even giving suggestions as to how to do it. Or the probably the most obvious one was, why don't you speak to your general liability counsel? Um, but during that whole time, my paralegal, Melissa, was monitoring the board to see if this guy was actually going to retain new counsel to, to go through with the terms of the consent agreement, but he never did. Ultimately, we, uh, we go to a hearing in December, and he states on the record that he's not going to go through the, the, the terms of the consent letter, specifically the, the Section 32 agreement, and he wants to litigate things on our end, among the issues I mentioned earlier. So after Melissa and I spoke with Chris uh, about the issues, probably the most pressing one I was worried about was an unrepresented claimant, how I wasn't really sure how the board or particularly the judge would interpret that. Would they be willing to go through with that? And so you have the situation where, you know, I guess in Vanita's case, the attorney's just actively feeding information. And then you show up to what is probably just a typical settlement approval hearing. You know, it's exactly. you're, you're going in there to say like, hi and bye. Uh, and have our client just close out the claim. And this guy just drops off the face of the earth on the record. And, you know, when you're there, what's the reaction of the claimant? Like what, what, what is happening at that moment? I think, I don't think he was surprised. I think because by the tone of the claimant's attorney at the hearing, she made it pretty clear that this was a long time coming. Oh, wow. Uh, and the, the, I, for reasons I, I, I don't know, uh, that's, that wasn't me, obviously made privy to, but uh, the judge was very surprised at the time, and she it was a different judge at the time, and she basically gave him an opportunity to seek new counsel to either follow through on his signature on the consent agreement and the 32, which had all been executed and filed, or you know not. And then, uh, so he, get, he gets time to look for new counsel, 
And, you know, this is where, you know, the uh, the soapbox underneath my feet starts getting like higher and higher. <laughs> and my face is going to go out of the screen because, you know, we we get looked at the bad as the bad guys in this situation. But I have to imagine that because he had counsel previously, he's probably going around trying to get new counsel and no one's going to agree to take him because there's no what? There's no money in for them. And I just don't understand why we get like this bad guy rap when, you know, this idea that claimants attorneys firms across the entire state really have the opportunity to help this person and decide not to take his case because there's no money in for them. So he knew the process. He probably was forced to go, uh, you know, rep and represent himself and now wants to litigate all these issues that you're talking about, you know, causal relationship, employer, employee relationship, coverage, so on and so forth. How does that lead to our eventual finding of a Section 29.5? Well, after I, uh, Melissa and I had spoken with Chris and uh, managing partner Noah about whether or not we pursued this, I had a conversation with the client. And after I explained all the, you know, what the, the next actions we could do and the potential risks involving a self-represented claimant, they were on board. They backed us and we filed a RFA2 raising section 295 violation against the claimant. Um, it was a kind of an interesting setup at the hearing when the judge uh, probably wanted to do it delicately because he was unrepresented. So he kind of drew it out and, and through that whole time was giving him opportunity to either obtain counsel to your point, Christian, to, help him facilitate this 32 agreement or represent him on the section 29 issue. Uh, but ultimately after uh, he requested that our office file a summation uh, outlining our position, we, he agreed with us citing the claimant's clear violation of the terms of our uh, consent letter, which was plainly written and warned the claimant that if he didn't uh, abide by these terms, then he was risking uh, his future workers' compensation benefits. That's and that's also interesting about uh, what your case is. That decision also formally disallowed the claim, right? Like you yes. know, Chris is here talking about a free, full, and final Section Thirty-Two settlement, but not only you get a twenty-nine-five violation, it's just like, oh, let me just throw this other term in there. You're disallowed. Go home, right? Don't come back. Uh, what a, what a win for you and Melissa in that case. And uh, you know, credit I guess really goes to like you were saying, the work being performed on what should have been a straightforward case just to keep up to date with what's going on. So great job, guys, uh, and congrats. So Thank you. It was interesting yeah. to see a disallowance. So just, uh, just to rewind briefly, so the basis for the 29-5 violation, what, you know, the 29-5 was violated at the moment the 32 didn't go forward, right? Yeah. So this, this is, right, then that was basically the argument. And that's what's kind of crazy about how powerful this requirement can actually be. Because just, just think about that. You can withdraw from a Section 32 for any reason, you know, within 10 days, even after it's approved at a hearing. You get 10 days to back out. And you don't need to tell anyone anything about it. You can just go, I don't want to do this anymore, Right. And yet here's a here's a consent agreement that says this is contingent upon approval of the 32. You withdrew from the 32. You violated 29.5. And so you get the functional equivalent of a 32, even though the 32 that's completely voluntary never went forward. I mean, it's could, it's crazy you how good a you actually saying that you actually saying that brings something to mind that, you know, if if 
the the contingency of both agreements, uh, you know, are are there, right? And then the claimant's attorney shows up to withdraw, right? And put yourself in the law judge's shoes. The law judge is now definitely not going to approve it, right? Because the claimant's attorney is is withdrawing on the spot. Is that also a bad move by the claimant's attorney? Because he or she has to know that by withdrawing from the settlement approval hearing, that judge is not approving it there today, right? Uh, am I, I don't know. It's just something I thought of based on what you just said, Chris. Yeah, well, so there's a there's a funny little caveat to this. You know, I don't want to put any ideas in, in anyone's heads here, but, you know, if you have an express written requirement in the 32 and in the consent agreement to proceed with the 32 or else, and like Dan said, we expressly warned them, you know, this 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 consent is expressly contingent upon all terms, including approval of the 32, comma, and failure to adhere to any of these terms, including approval of the 32, shall constitute a violation of 29.5 such that the claimant has waived his right to future benefits. And they signed off on it and notarized the claimant's signature. I mean, it was pretty iron tight, right? And so yeah. if you're if you're an attorney and you show up to the 32 approval hearing, if you don't know the consequences of withdrawing, you should know the consequences of withdrawing. And that's where you get into the, the dirty M word in the legal field. Field, right malpractice and as uh -oh. a uh, again i don't want to put ideas in any claimant's heads out there <laughs> but theoretically he just compromised his client's right to benefits and didn't explain it to him right and so um or he or she the claimant's attorney and just as uh this is going to probably be one of the most obnoxious things you'll ever hear me say but as a fun side note we would have a lean on that malpractice action. <laughs> yes. Uh, nerds everywhere rejoicing with that last comment. <laughs> it's, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, way to tie it all together, right? Uh, if, if essentially we have the right to dictate our consent of your settlement because, hey, by the way, when you first got hurt, who started paying you from day one? We did. Right? Who started paying your doctors from day one? We did. So there's actually a reason why we have that right for your third party case. And you have so many different types of claims where you just feel like a claimant's third party attorney is promising the moon and the stars to their client without going through this particular process. And it's one of those bittersweet wins because, yes, we are aggressive and advocate for that area of the law to make sure that our clients gain a position that's rightfully theirs. But almost a little bit sad that our compatriots on the other side don't know what they're doing. I mean, that's that's World's just sad. Tiniest violin, Christian. Oh, okay. Tiniest okay. Violin. It's funny okay. you mentioned that, Christian, because an interesting note to this is that this particular claimant's attorney signed the consent agreement along with the claimant's general liability counsel. Right. So uh, it was a credit to the associate at the time handling this to have both attorneys sign as a matter of. And to make it clear that to, to add to the impact that how egregious this violation was, he was represented by not one, but two attorneys. And unfortunately for this individual claimant, no medical bills were paid and no indemnity was ever issued. And, you know, we talked about 29.2 in the beginning, right? Uh, and, and our right to subrogate, you know, posing it to you guys, I don't know, but let's say he backs out, right, of the settlement approval hearing in, in, um, in Dan's case. 
Could the claimant restart a third party action to kind of clear all the problems? Because that could be something, right? I mean, we talked about we lose the right to subrogate when you don't give us the chance with a voluntary uh, uh, stipulation of discontinuance. So, Chris, as the expert here, if I'm the most intelligent claimant in the world, that probably doesn't exist, but if I am, can I just refile against one of the 40 defendants in Dan's case anyway and and kind of right that wrong? Or, or am I already screwed because of my uh, attorney's malfeasance? So uh, no defense carrier on earth, uh, and that includes us, right? When, when a 32 gets approved, uh, gets approved, we don't file that um, Shroy PY and issue payment until after the notice of approval comes out, right? No defense carrier on earth is going to pay a third party settlement without one thing at, at bare minimum. And that is a general liability release. And on top of that, there's a stipulation of discontinuance that gets filed to close out the action with the court. So, you know, yeah, it, you may not have ever, you know, the third party settlement might not have worked out in your favor in the comp case. You know, there might have been a 29-5 violation. Do you get a second bite at the apple when you've already entered into possibly multiple written agreements that you've signed off on to release these defendants from liability? Heck no. No, I mean it's that's that's the whole point of these defendants going out and getting having the claimant sign a general release and filing a stipulation of discontinuance with the court. You know, it's just uh, it, there, there's no second bite at the apple here, and I think Dan's case makes the point even more poignantly. He said this was this was denied. We didn't pay anything. We didn't pay any medical or indemnity, and we were going to go ahead with the 32, and he withdrew, and it was still a 29-5 violation. There was no lien. Well, that's so. that's where Dan's case and Vanity's case are a little bit similar because the reason why those violations still apply is because there's always the potential for future exposure, right? Even though we didn't pay anything, uh, you know, we're the best attorneys in the world, but Dan loses every once in a while, right? So, you know, there might be some exposure down the road. Right. We're not perfect. But, you know, uh, uh, dear claimants, attorneys, I tried. OK, I, tr I tried to ask. I, I gave Chris a softball. He hit it out of the park. No. One bite. You're done. So any final thoughts from you guys, uh, you know, as we circle around the bases with a home run trot for you? Um, you know, what what's your takeaway for our clients here uh, when they have a case that's kind of like this? Um. I, I, I guess if I could go first, I guess for me personally with, with my claim, um, it's, it's really two things. Uh, one is knowing that we have the option of, of pursuing a Section 29 violation. It exists out there. There are ways that we can pursue this on your behalf. There are ways that we can win on your behalf. It's understanding what to look for so that we can address it in the right way. And number two, and I think I can, you know, speak on behalf of a lot of us, know Chris Major because he <laughs> is the knower of all things. And without Chris Major, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't have this fantastic book, this fantastic resource. We wouldn't have him to consult on all of these claims so that we can get these great outcomes for our clients. So um, it's it's for me, it's those two things. 
I appreciate that, but bear in mind we also have these uh, rock-solid consent templates at, at lowest to always hang our hat on at the end of the day, right? When we get that violation, it's because, like Dan pointed out, he had such clear language warning the claimant, this is going to go badly for you if, if any of this is not complied with. So, you know, even independent of my involvement, you know, we, we really do put a lot of care and consideration and thought and effort into those consent agreements. And like Christian said, you know, I, I, I was cringing when he said it. Don't send an email saying, yes, we consent. I, I, I will I will come to your house and knock on the door to yell at you personally. Like, <laughs> get it right, because it can, it can really change the whole complexion of your case. That's my takeaway, at least. Great. Anything from you, Dan? Last words? No, I would second Chris and Vanda's point. It's a strongly worded, strongly worded, and most importantly, clearly written consent letter. Uh, you know, has its benefits in the long run. You know, speaking for myself and Vanda, obviously it benefited benefited us. Um, and it's also the, the credit to uh, us and our paralegal teams working together to help better serve our clients. Great way to end. Agreed. We'll be right back again with Chris Major and actually to also introduce another one of our star associates, Hannah Bacon. All right, and we're back. Uh, I didn't expect there to be a part two uh, for this month's podcast, but it's not every day that you're uh, walking around the office and uh, Christopher Major jumps out and says, wait, 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 we've got another case and it might be the biggest of them all. So naturally, I drop everything I'm doing. I'm looking at this case that we have, and I am begging uh, our dear friend Hannah Bacon to come on uh, and record a supplement episode for the Third Fridays podcast. So if you have been listening so far today, thank you so much. Uh, We've got more Section 29.5 violations for you. Uh, So Hannah Bacon, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. And of course, right Chris Major, since I've already referenced him, since you've heard his voice for now, his now 12th episode uh, of the podcast. Welcome back, Chris. Thank you. Is Hannah a first-timer? That is true, Hannah. It's, it's, it is it's your, your your first first appearance. Um, uh, I know that uh, we, don't, we don't listen to all of them, right? But maybe, uh, you know, we get your network in with our, our loyal listeners to see, like, what, what a great job you've done. Uh, for our client in this case, because, you know, really this result is uh, nothing short of spectacular. It is uh, such an amazing result thanks to your hard work. Uh, so let's really get into it, right? You know, um, we're, si- we're sitting here now in July of 2023, and it's a year ago where we start to see something that's going on that doesn't make sense. So like what, can you put us in that in that place, Hannah? What 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 were we doing at that time uh, in this case that led us to, you know, request a new form of litigation? Yeah, so uh, just to provide some brief background, um, this claim is over three years old. Um, it results from a motor vehicle accident um, in February 2020. It's established for the neck, back, bilateral shoulders, left ankle, and left hip. Um, over the last few years, it's been through bouts of litigations on issues outside of 29.5, Um, However, once we realized that there was potentially an egregious violation of 29.5, we really focused our efforts on that route, um, 
due to the potentially high exposure on this claim and the legislative power of 29-5 to eradicate that exposure, essentially. So around the end of 2021, the claimant in this claim filed a third-party action in New York Supreme Court against the at-fault driver for negligent operation of a motor vehicle. That civil action eventually settled for the policy limit, and shortly after it settled, the carrier, our client, provided third-party counsel with its written consent to settle, which is required by workers' compensation law, section 29-5. Importantly, that written consent contained explicit terms and conditions to the carrier's consent. In other words, the carrier's consent to the third-party settlement was explicitly contingent on the claimant's satisfaction of three conditions. If the conditions were not satisfied, there was no consent. Those conditions were that, first, the lien reimbursement check was to be issued to the carrier within 15 days of receipt of the settlement funds. Two, the lien reimbursement check was to be issued from the third-party settlement proceeds. And three, the third-party settlement proceeds were to be kept in escrow by the third-party attorney until disbursement. So third-party counsel signed the consent letter, thereby agreeing to the conditions in February of 2022. Third-party attorney shortly thereafter received the settlement proceeds, unbeknownst to the carrier, and as per the terms of the consent letter, those proceeds were required to be kept in escrow until the lien reimbursement check was issued from those proceeds to the carrier 15 days thereafter. However, the third-party attorney did not keep the funds in escrow, and he did not issue a reimbursement check from those funds to the carrier 15 days after receiving them. The attorney actually used those funds to pay back a settlement funding loan and then sent the balance to the claimant, leaving nothing for the carrier. Several months later, after the carrier had received nothing, heard nothing from the third-party attorney, the carrier became aware that the third-party settlement proceeds were actually disbursed in violation of the explicit terms and conditions of the consent agreement that the carrier and third-party counsel signed. So as soon as that information was realized, the carrier and we filed a request for action with the Workers' Compensation Board to address the claimant's clear violation of Section 29-5. That's a great lead-in. You know, I think one of the things that I noticed in your intro was settling that third-party case for the policy limits, and I think that played a big role in the actions taken by third-party counsel in their belief of what needed to be done versus what should have been done. So did you believe that, you know, maybe they were acting maliciously, or do you think maybe it was like they just innocently were being ignorant of what the requirements were at the time that they took this action and paid out the settlement to the claimant? I'm not sure if it was either. I can just say that the terms of the consent letter were very, very clear. I think a third grader could have understood that, you know, it was required that the funds be kept in escrow until disbursement and then issued to the carrier in a reimbursement check from those proceeds within 15 days. It was very clear. I don't see how anyone could have misunderstood that. Shots fired. Are you smarter than a third grader? I will say 
in my opinion, there was maybe some uh, not contemporaneous chicanery, but perhaps some posthumous chicanery. Because once the uh, once the violation started to get put on the table, you know what happens here is our client finds out the money finds out the money is spent, and then all of a sudden a check shows up for the lien reimbursement amount specified in the consent. And so the client looks at it, and it's from, you know, a settlement funding loan company, you know, 877 cash now kind of deal. Uh, and they go, who is this, and what is this, and where is this coming from? And then that's where the whole spiral starts going. And, um, you know, Hannah mentioned the policy limits, and that's kind of important here, because the policy limits were, you know, the bare minimum. Uh, and they were wholly inadequate to, comp to compensate the claimant's total damages, so where does that lead if you deal with personal injury cases? To an underinsured motorist benefits claim. And this check that shows up out of nowhere in last summer, 2022, is from a settlement funding loan company. And we know the third party action settled and that money's been spent already, right? So where is this settlement funding loan coming from? Huh, I wonder. <laughs> so, you know, that's where we set, third party counsel then starts to backpedal and says, Oh, no, 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 no. There was, there was a verbal agreement for the carrier to take their burns rights instead of accepting reimbursement. And we said, uh, all right, um, where is that? Because, because here we have a consent agreement you signed that says you were going to cut us a check, and uh, that didn't happen. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll leave it to uh, Hannah to explain the law judge's rationale, which we vehemently disagreed with. But, you know, you're starting to... I'll give a little bit of a spoiler in advance. Section 29 is inapplicable to UIM recoveries. So how are you going to cut us a check from a, to reimburse a Section 29 lien from a case we don't even have a Section 29 lien on? Well, not just that, right? Um, you know, Hannah mentioned that the case is three years old, right? So a three-year-old case um, where the third-party civil accompaniment settles for policy limits is usually a bad thing for us, right? Because we have paid in excess of that policy limit, most likely. And the whole idea of risk transfer is that if it's someone else's fault, then we recover from that correct tortfeasor for the benefits that we've uh, we've paid the claimant in the workers' compensation claim. So I think my, my uh, inclination as to even bringing up the policy limits is, do we think that the claimant's third-party attorney would have acted differently if he got a $500,000 settlement on the third-party side? Is that possible? Or do we think that you know, him not understanding third-grade correspondence really just fit, you know, hit, you know, bit it, right, regardless of what the number was? Um, I think it's possible in this, that it would have changed things in the sense that there's actually money moving to the claimant. Um, and what was sort of different about this, you know, you pointed out um, you know, how we have a Section 29 right of recovery and this tiny policy limit, you know, wasn't enough to pay. You know, to work in like somewhat actual numbers here, the amount we were going to get reimbursed from the third party settlement was like approximately 10% of what we have paid to date uh, at the time the third party action settled. Um, you know, you're looking at you're looking at about 16,000 versus 150,000, right? So we had a lien on the entirety of the third-party settlement, and that's kind of the operative fact here, was that no money was supposed to go to the claimant at all. And yet, you know, some of it goes to repay the first settlement funding loan, 
And then the balance goes to the claimant. And then third party counsel goes, oh, no, 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 I thought we agreed to Burns, you know? <laughs> so it, uh, there would have been enough money to go around. So I think it would have changed things. But, you know, the, this retroactive argument that there was another agreement in place, you know, that's where I started me personally, my hackles started to go up a little bit. <laughs> right. And then, so we get to the hearing, Hannah, right? Um, and I think it's very clear to all parties what we're going to argue, right? It's in our pleadings. It's the purpose why we're there. Uh, and what, what happened? So at that hearing, um, well, it's important to note that prior to the hearing, um, once we filed the request for judicial intervention, um, as Chris mentioned, the claimant attempted to cure the mistake by sending um, lien reimbursement check to the carrier. It was 189 days after it was due, pursuant to the terms of the consent letter. Um, and as he mentioned, that um, check came from the uh, UIM anticipated settlement proceeds, which the carrier does not have Section 29 rights upon. Um, so once we got to the hearing, um, you know, we requested that benefits be immediately suspended because there was a clear violation of 29.5, regardless of the fact that the carrier eventually, albeit 189 days late, received the lien reimbursement check. Uh, the terms of the consent agreement, the three terms I had mentioned earlier, were clearly violated, and thus there was no consent because the consent was conditioned upon satisfaction of the terms. They weren't satisfied, no consent. However, the claimant's attorney argued that um, he was like, look, judge, they eventually received the check, although it was late, there's no prejudice, they have the money now, there's no violation of 29.5. The judge bought the argument and found that there was no violation of 29.5 because the check was eventually received. Judge even admitted that the conditions of consent were not complied with, but seemingly only considered the fact that there was, um, and from the judge's perspective, no prejudice to the carrier because the check was eventually received. Which is crazy to me on two accounts. One, uh, prejudice is irrelevant, right, in applying this statute. Um, uh, you, you think about any type of law. Let's like even step out of our industry. When two parties represented by counsel draft a written agreement that is then signed, that dictates the law of the case, Right. Like unless unless there is, you know, some kind of forbearance of, of a law that they shouldn't be giving up or a right that they shouldn't be given up. The the claimant's attorney arguing prejudice tells me that they already lost. Right. They're 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 admitting that they they violated the statute. And then the judge taking it a step further is applying that standard, even though it doesn't matter. And also not understanding that actually prejudice was retained by the carrier, right? If we don't get the check on time, then I could make an argument that we don't get our burns rights to, to start applying at that moment, whether it's dollar for dollar or at the burns rate. How could a judge say that we didn't get credit or we didn't get prejudice rather Without, you know, to me, telling me that you don't understand what this law means. And I think that's that that was what jumped out at me when I read the, the board panel decision is like the judge made this rule based on prejudice or we're we're not in Section 18 notice here, land here. Right. This is a totally different area of the law. And 
I think one of the important things you, you pointed out there, Christian, is, is prejudice never enters into the calculation in a 29-5 violation. And, you know, the only time prejudice is ever relevant is what we talked about in the first half of this podcast with the non-proton motions. It's literally the only time, you know, prejudice to the carrier is a consideration. But, you know, one of the things I mentioned in, in this month's webinar, you know, what is a consent agreement? Um, it's, it's literally just a settlement contract. Right. And you're in basic principles of contract law at that point. Uh, and, you know, one of the thing, one of the arguments Hannah made in her brief that I thought was uh, really well thought out. And it kind of succinctly summarizes, you know, what, what you were getting at there, Christian. It's if you're going to say that this is OK, you're going to say that Section 29.5 is optional, because what you're saying is it doesn't matter when the money shows up, where the money comes from, what format it takes. As long as an amount, you know, equal to the number specified in the consent eventually shows up on the carrier's doorstep, all is well, right? So, so you know, maybe the claimant sells his house five years from now and pays it off then, right? <laughs> I mean, so the, the argument was sort of, uh, I, I thought, really poignant that, like, if you're going to say this is okay, one of two things needs to happen. You need to say Section 29.5 is optional as a whole. Or you need to give us lien rights on this UIM recovery because you can't you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? So I really thought that that argument was quite compelling, and it goes to right what you were talking about, Christian. You know, and surprisingly, right? We obviously, you know, shocker to anyone listening, we we won, right? We're we're not talking about this case if we lost, <laughs> but uh, when I opened the decision and saw that it was five pages, I I actually. I thought it might have been a mistake. It's what I see sometimes in my own cases. It's like if it's a five panel board panel, five page board panel decision, it makes me feel like they just rubber stamp the judge's decision and I'm out. I lose. So like I I don't know if you felt that way, Hannah, when you opened this decision today. Is that something that like goes into your head or am I just crazy on my own? Oh, no, my, my heart completely sank when I, I was shaking, when I opened this decision, we've been waiting for, for a very long time. Um, unfortunately, I don't think the board panel went into the, the complexities um, of our arguments as much as we had hoped, although we got, we got the outcome we hoped for. Um, but uh, I, I do feel like, you know, they just touched on the issues, but didn't really dive into the complexities thereof. You know, and one of the things that bugs me about this decision, you know, Hannah and I sort of agreed afterwards, you know, they got it right, but they got it wrong in getting it right. <laughs> you know, it's um, one of the, the line that sticks out to me is uh, it's unclear where the second check of $16,500 is coming from. Oh, right. We told you. you know, it was, we, we told yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. It, how is it unclear? We even submitted an additional evidence affidavit telling you exactly where this is coming from, you know? So they kind of took the easy way out, but, you know, they got the answer right, so all's well that ends well, right? Uh, it, I mean, they do end up kind of nice and tidy when you're saying that they find that the carrier withdrew its consent to the third-party settlement. So it does provide a basis for, you know, these shoddy outside third-party counsel actions that they think it's like, you know— it's all well and good, but in reality, when you have a full-service law firm defending your workers' compensation claim, you have to believe that you better have your ends met on the third-party side because that is a material, like, 
issue for us. We wouldn't be spending all this money for three years in workers' compensation without the benefit of this type of you know mechanism to get this reimbursement. So, I mean, again, like this is an incredible victory. Um, any takeaways from you guys? Um, just final thoughts before we close up shop and uh, you know give our listeners a break. Sure. So I have I have three t- takeaways written down here. Um, first one is to um, always ensure that your consent letter, if you're the carrier, explicitly enumerates any conditions or terms upon which the consent is contingent, and that in the event the conditions are not satisfied, there is no consent. Um, secondly, a lien reimbursement to the carrier pursuant to Section 29 must come from the third-party settlement proceeds. As we mentioned earlier, carrier does not have Section 29 rights on a UIM recovery, so the reverse reimbursement to the carrier can't come from that pot of money. And then lastly, uh, I think it's Contract Law 101. If you want to modify a duly executed written contract, you're going to need more than allegations of an alleged oral conversation that took place modifying those terms. The written agreement controls unless there is a prior or a subsequent written agreement modifying those terms. Oh man, you could have ended it any better. Uh, Actually, no, no, I'm I'm saying that wrong. You could not have ended it at any better. That's perfect. Uh, So for, for Hannah Bacon, Chris Major, Dan Gillis, and Vanna Saunders. My name is Christian Cisan, reminding you guys to defend from day one.